Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. I've got a really special interview today, conducted a couple of weeks ago with Jason Selvig and Devram Stifler. You may know them as the comedy duo, The Good Liars. They pose as interviewers uh, and drop in on Trump rallies and other political events that essentially create pranks as a political commentary, something not unlike The Daily Show, but uh, taken to the next level in many ways. They were on the scene creating trouble in Washington on January 6th. They were there, eyewitnesses, and they made, believe it or not, amazing comedy out of it. Uh, and they were famously at the NRA convention in Houston a couple of weeks ago after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. And that was Jason Selvig, who stood before Wayne LaPierre, the head of the NRA, and posed as an ally with an ostensibly pro-NRA speech. Let's listen to that now just to jog your memory. The chair recognizes the gentleman at microphone 1A. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jason Selvig, and I'm from West Palm Beach, Florida. And I would like to say that I am sick and tired of the left-wing media, and frankly, people in this room today, spreading misinformation about Wayne LaPierre. Whenever there's a mass shooting, they all say that Wayne LaPierre isn't doing enough to stop these mass shootings, and even implying that Wayne LaPierre has played a part in making it easier for these shooters to, to get guns, to get weapons. You, you heard it after Las Vegas. You heard it after Pulse nightclub in Orlando. You heard it after Columbine. You, you, you heard it after Parkland. You heard it after Virginia Tech. You heard it after Sandy Hook. You heard it after El Paso. You heard it after Buffalo. You kept hearing that Wayne LaPierre isn't doing enough. And frankly, that's not true. The NRA, under Wayne LaPierre's leadership, has provided thoughts and prayers to the victims and their families. And, and maybe these mass shootings would stop happening if, if we all thought a little bit more and we prayed a little bit more. So I'm asking everyone in this room to think, to pray. Give your thoughts and your prayers and your thoughts and your prayers and your prayers and your thoughts. And if we give enough of these thoughts and these prayers, these mass shootings will stop. So I, I want to thank you. Wayne LaPierre, for all your thoughts and all your prayers. Thank you. And of course, the amazing thing is that Wayne LaPierre, the head of the NRA, uh, sat stone-faced listening to this speech, clearly unable to discern what was going on exactly. And uh, so without further ado, here's my interview with Jason and DeVram about how they got themselves into that situation in Houston a couple of weeks ago and what it is their art form and their comedy is about. Your profile has definitely gone up recently because of the NRA video that's out there, and uh, everybody was sending that to me this week, which is a sign of its virality. Everybody's It's hilarious and pointed and kind of the best of what you guys do. And one of the things I was thinking while watching it, uh, you know, 
Jason, you're standing up there looking like a fine young conservative NRA man at the podium, and uh, you're able to directly address Wayne LaPierre. And he, you know, it's hard to say from his stony expression how he's calculating what he's hearing from you as you say that you're so thankful of all the uh, thoughts and prayers that he's offered to these massacres, which you catalog right in front of him. And that was part of the power of the video. But tell me how it is that you guys arranged to have this moment happen. Had you already been planning to go to this NRA convention? And I know this is a technical question, but it's kind of interesting. I'm just was fascinated how you found yourself there. Uh, it was dumb luck. It was dumb luck that we were able to be inside of there at that point. Uh, because the day before Trump and Ted Cruz had all spoken, I think in the same assembly hall, and um, the second day we'd filmed some interviews on the first day. The second day we'd, we'd gone around the convention a little bit. We talked to a couple people and um, we just kind of talked and we're like, let's go upstairs and see what's going on <laughs> upstairs in the event hall. Um, we'd, we knew that there was like a members meeting going on, but we didn't know what that meant. And then once we got there, we saw that, that members were allowed to get up there and speak. And it was kind of a back and forth deciding if, you know, we've done things before where we've interrupted events and things like that. Um, and we decided that the best thing to do would be to try to try to get up there and on the microphone. Um, and we'd had a couple things written and we had kind of a thesis for our thoughts on, on everything, um, that was happening. Yeah. So it was kind of like condensing that into a, a pro Wayne LaPierre uh, kind of monologue um, yeah. there in real time, 15 minutes before we went up there. So this was not something we went being like, this is what we need to do on our trip here. It was just being prepared for anything, literally, and then, and then getting up there and when the opportunity presented itself. Yeah. And so you were like writing that script like on your phone, like before you were going to get your chance to get up at the podium? Is that basically what it boiled down to? Yeah, Devram and I were going back and forth about like what to say in the in the speech and what um, how how best to put it and in different ways that uh, we we could like bring up the issues that we want to bring up. Uh, and it ended up basically I was reading basically the last script of what it was, and then I kind of went off on it a little bit off script and just yes. kept saying thoughts and prayers and thoughts and prayers and thoughts and prayers. Cause I figured at some point somebody was going to be like, Oh, this is, this is, they're, they're, they're making fun of us right now. But that, that, that yeah. point never happened. I think, I think Wayne had, had an idea Look at, looking at him. I just remember staring at him and he was nodding. And then there was just a couple moments where I was like, he, he, he knows, he knows what's up right now. Probably after the fifth time you said thoughts and prayers yeah. uh, <laughs> had to have occurred to him. But yeah, yeah, you know, that's the thing about thoughts and prayers. If you keep doing them, I guess maybe the idea is they work after a while. So maybe he just thought this guy really digs it. Or he prayed yeah. that. I don't know. We yeah. don't know. Could have been either one. Oh, my God. Um, I was trying to imagine putting myself in your shoes, standing up there and then just keeping a straight face and just going through with it, there's a lot of courage involved, or at least, you know, some confidence in your theatrical abilities. But we know from watching all of your videos, as I have, uh, that you've had a lot of training in this. Yeah, I guess, yeah, training by fire, I guess, is the how we've, we've trained for this. 
we've always found like you, you don't when, once you've kind of committed to something there's uh almost feels like there's more risk in bailing than there is in kind of sticking with it and seeing yeah. it through so i can't speak for jason in this situation but i feel like once you get a couple sentences into it you can't just walk away so uh you know for better or, or worse i feel like that's carried us through a lot of the stuff we've done is like wow this is getting weird but you know saying we're we're not who we say we are or whatever it is admitting to you know not not quite being uh, on the side that we we've said we are seems like riskier than just kind of going for it so and and in this situation it was you know a lot was made about how trump was speaking there and they didn't allow guns or weapons or anything in there at the NRA convention um this was there was no such rules at this at this um, at this meeting? People were were strapped there, and it was like that did cross my really? mind as I was going up there. I didn't think anything. I mean, it would have. I don't think that the the, the people there would have reacted that way, and I, I would say there's a ninety nine point nine percent chance they wouldn't have. But it's just you know that everyone there does have a gun because it's the NRA convention. Well, it certainly adds an extra layer of tension. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it reminds me of when DeVram was on stage with Ted Cruz at a gun range in New Hampshire. He got up there and he was telling everyone how scary guns are. And we were just, everyone was open carrying there. I was like, well, that's that's a brave thing to do because there's a lot of, there's a lot yeah. of guns there. Oh my God. So The Good Liars is the name of your duo. And I'm just curious, what do you call this? What do you guys do? I was I was thinking about this last night and actually like trying to put words down because we were seeing a bunch of headlines about the NRA. And I don't even know what to call it. What happened at the NRA? Because it's like, is it a stunt? Is it a prank? Is it people say it's trolling? And I don't like any of the words. So and you know, people have called us guerrilla comedians, people have called us trolls, which I hate. I hate that word, troll. Yeah, yeah. Um, and prankster, you know, pranks, like, sometimes I guess it's a prank. I I, I don't know. So I, I have a hard time identifying, or I guess labeling ourselves. Comedians in the real world, political and socially, you know, aware comedians in the real world, which doesn't roll off the tongue, but it's, yeah, yeah. There, it's so many categories. And also, I feel like as the country changes, as, as events come up and we're like, oh, you know what, maybe we should do here. And sometimes it takes the default of just, you know, interviewing people. Um, it, what we're doing will probably change over time and has, has changed over time for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just talking to my wife a moment ago who I'd already seen the video, but then she sent it to me independently. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I just saw that. And I, and we, I, we were talking about what it is and um, she goes, it's almost like journalism. She said, it's like, it's like, uh, it has an, a, a quality of, and she's not talking about the NRA win specifically. She's talking about some of the other ones where you go to Trump rallies, you go to CPAC, you go out into the wild and you kind of like, you know, this is the first time some of us are seeing these characters and finding out what they actually think. And you are interviewing them. You are technically interviewing them and finding out what they think, even if on some level you're sort of scratching the surface of it and finding out how crackpot or insane it is or non-logical. And so there's a commentary element of it. But let me just um, ask you guys, how. let's start from the top a little bit about 
how you guys got into this and where you're from and how you met and how this came together. Like, um, have you, were you guys involved in comedy before this? I was like hosting my own, uh, stand-up comedy shows, like my first year in New York back in, I don't know, 2008 or nine or something. Jason, you had a friend that performed at one of them and we met at, at that. So we met through comedy, but then we just played basketball together for years. We both liked playing basketball and, uh, didn't make anything funny for a long time. And then, um, and then when Occupy Wall Street happened, so we're dating ourselves a little bit here, but a little over 10 years ago, uh, there was, we thought an opportunity to go make one funny video at Occupy Wall Street, which we thought, wouldn't it be funny if these bankers that are saying all these horrible things behind closed doors about these protesters, why don't we go get some thrift store suits, go down there, say these things to them, maybe, maybe dial it up to an 11 out of 10 to make it funny instead of just sad. Uh, and just see what kind of reactions we get. Uh, and we went there and things were a little bit different. It was before everyone was so concerned, uh, us included about spreading fake news. We thought it was awesome to pretend to be these bankers. Um, yeah, we created the Occupy, Occupy Wall Street movement, right? yes. we called it. And we were going to out-occupy the occupiers. So we, uh, we started saying crazy stuff like if, you know, if you guys... Uh, continue to occupy this place it affects our salaries we won't be able to keep up our cocaine habits and people thought we were serious they thought we were like trying to be funny but that we really were bankers and it caught on a little life of its own uh we went down there a few more times and it created this movement that ultimately ended with real bankers protesting with us saying this stuff oh so my God. uh we kind of got to see this actually happen like okay so there's more to this than we thought. And I think that sparked it for sure. I mean, we, we got real people involved um, on something we thought we was just open satire. Uh, and so, you know, it, it was like very clear to us at that point that there was more here. Uh, were you also we, involved we, we both in- We were at UCB Theater, like-, like Okay, uh, yes. I don't know if that's what you're gonna ask, but like, yeah. uh, I was on house teams there for years. Um, and then eventually Jason got involved with like, some of the um, political, you know, uh, weekly or monthly show that was going on there. So basically, we, we've always maintained like a, a a link to comedy, and that's definitely why we got into this. It's changed as like the world has changed, and the seriousness of all this stuff seems to get ratcheted up. But we're definitely, you know, comedians, and and started off that way. Yeah, I was doing I, I was doing sketch comedy, and um, you know, we we both have done I like man on the street stuff before a little bit, I guess, before, um, doing the Occupy Wall Street videos. And, um, yeah, we, we were basketball buddies. <laughs> and then, and then after, after Occupy, Occupy Wall Street, we were like, okay, there, there's something we, we, we're, we work well together and we both kind of like lack a little switch in our brain that's supposed to go off in certain situations. Um, and so we continued uh, making things together to various degrees of success. I mean, some of the stuff was just terrible. And then um, we've, we've definitely found our footing recently. But we, we ended up doing, in 2016, we did a political prank movie called Undecided, where we, we pranked all the presidential candidates and wove it into a narrative feature, um, you know, not unlike Borat, um, or a Bruno or something like that. And, uh, that was fun. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how successful it was, but people who saw it liked it. And then I think after Trump won, 
no one watched Zero it. Zero more people yeah, no, it. no one wanted to, to <laughs> be like, yeah, let's let's revisit the 2016 election. That was a fun time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that's uh, it. So the, you know, the Upright Citizens Brigade improvisational training definitely comes into this because in, in a lot of these interviews, you're really rolling with the punches. You're in character. You're just like, and you're paying. So one of the fascinating things about watching these videos and for people who may be listening to this or reading this, um, looking at these videos, you can really see your your head is working in overtime in the moment. You're really listening to what the people are saying and like thinking about your next sort of chess move in terms of talking to them. It's amazing. And I was really reminded as a kind of comedy nerd of like the you know, the roots of this kind of street comedy with like Coil and Sharp and the uh, you know original guys that got on the street in like the 50s. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. But uh, – Oh, I'm I'm so blessed to be able to tell you guys about Coil and Sharp. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> but they were uh, they were the pioneers in San Francisco in the '50s. They would go on the street and interview people and say, "Would you like to? Uh, we have a job offer for you." And it's like you know, we want you to. Uh, we're going to recreate a a living hell, and it's going to be a fire pit <laughs> with snakes in it. And uh, you just we just want you to go down there and wrestle with these snakes in a fire pit, and we'll pay you fifty dollars. And the person would be like, "Yeah, you know that's uh, I'm okay, sure, I'll give it a shot." You know, just these crazy, <laughs> insane things. And um, it evolved over the years to like you know everything from candid camera to to Borat, right? Uh, so there's a sort of a lineage here uh, that I was sort of like happy to see because in a way. Uh, Comedy itself has been trying to find its footing in the modern times uh, mm -hmm. because you have a kind of a whole party, this Trump world, which is like almost immune to irony on some level, which gives you guys all this opportunity to kind of like play this weird line, right, in these videos. So, you know, you talk about the uh, Occupy Wall Street thing, and then you did the, the 2016 candidates, right? You were just 2016. Saying, and yeah. then 2020, yeah. we did another. And then we did another 2020 film. But in between there, you were—I mean—you started going to these Trump rallies, and you started seeking out Trump, you know, uh, scenes. And I wanted to really ask a lot about like what your experiences have been going into that world, and what you expected to find, and then what you did find, and like you must have had to been a lot of trial and error trying to figure out how to position yourself with these people and like find out what they were thinking and, and were you, and how surprised you were by what you discovered when you went into them. Tell me about your history with these Trump rallies. Well, the first one we did was 2016, which we filmed the, the prank or the stunt, or I still can't say these words, um, with Donald Trump, where we, we called him boring. And that was the first time we'd ever been to a, a, a Trump event and it was at the very beginning of it. It was at January like 11th, I think it was, 2016. And we all, at that point, I was convinced that Trump not only, he was just going to lose, in the, he was going to drop out of the primaries because, like, uh, of course, no one could vote for the guy from The Apprentice who's gone bankrupt however many times. Like, he's not going to yeah. be a presidential candidate. And boy, was I wrong about that. Um, and... We went to a couple, I think it was like, we went to that one, and then we maybe went to another one in New Hampshire, or Jenna Friedman went to one, and we were kind of outside when we were filming. And then we ended up at one the summer of 2016 in Orange County, California. And from in between those two times, it was a completely different 
vibe where we went into the first one was at a, in a small event space. This one was in a an arena where there was ten thousand people there, and you could walk in and you could feel the anger. You could feel the heat of Being like outside, how, like you know, protesters were facing off with you know attendees and cops were trying to divide people and eggs and bottles were flying you, you like in the bathrooms of this this arena were you know a bunch of uh of, of small bottles of booze like nips like airplane bottles all empty and like people were it was noon on a tuesday it was yeah. noon on a tuesday <laughs> and like jason said this for this first this first one was like a bunch of local you know, people from New Hampshire, like a, a few hundred, couple hundred, maybe um, everyone from, you know, somewhat close by who was like excited to see this guy that was kind of, um, you know, making some waves. But like those six months made all the difference. Uh, it, it was it was wild. And then leading up to the the RNC where we also were. That was just like a militarized zone. <laughs> like, yeah. this seemed like, you know, at, at the time, I remember commenting, like, we, we were there for the RNC four years prior, and it kind of felt like a party. And, like, there was, it was, like, a little bit lighthearted. And it was, like, Mitt Romney and, you know, people were excited about their chances, and it, it felt kind of lighthearted. And this was, like, you know, cops on horseback, um just making sure that, you know, felt like there was very little life there. And we just did not, again, think that he stood a chance of winning. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I guess moving forward, yeah, I, we can go to every Trump rally we went to. No, but it was, it, I guess after the election, you know, we, oh, that was our, our other Trump experience. That was a real jokes on us night. We went to, we went to Trump Tower on election night with our MAGA hats and, we were going to make fun of Trump after he lost. That was our big plan. A reporter <laughs> got, got us in there, kind of. It wasn't open to everyone. So someone said, oh, I recognize you guys. Why don't you come in with me? We thought we, it was so special that we were going to get to be there and maybe call Trump a loser when he came downstairs. Well, he didn't know. It, uh, and on his, in his he didn't know what we were going to plan. He wasn't of course an not. accomplice. On, uh, right, 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 right. <laughs> Um, but, you know, as, as like 10 p.m., 1030 rolled around, we realized that the joke was kind of on us um, that night. And, uh, you know, the, the rest of the, those four years, I guess we kind of know how they went. And then since, you know, 2020 in the, the pandemic, like where who else was holding gigantic events? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, exactly. you know, even even had we wanted to, like, do something else, this was where people's focus was and this is where people were still getting together. We tried to do it as safely as we could. But um, this is just what was happening. And they, you know, still are happening as of a couple of days ago in Wyoming. How many um, rallies have you guys been to? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's depressing to think about. Uh <sighs> I guess including January sixth because that was a rally. That was um, a rally, yeah. technically. Yeah. Probably, probably fifteen, maybe. Wow. Think, maybe yeah, I, would say I don't like, think more than that. I don't think more than that. No. Yeah. I mean, it seems like every few weeks we're um, looking up when the next one is. Should we do this? Should we not? And then, we're, then we're back. So, I don't know. Fifteen sounds about right. When you guys show up at this thing and you have your gear, okay, and maybe you have sketched out some ideas about things you might ask or positions you might take and weird things you might do. But do you have to look at each other and just take a deep breath and be like, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, 
Yes, because sometimes it's you'll talk to some people and I mean it's depressing because you know, like everybody thinks that the election was stolen. There's a there's certain things that are you know proven facts. Um, there's a lot of that are just repeatedly they say the opposite, um, and, and that sometimes you'll hear things from from people that you know like the Jim Carrey thing. Like yeah, not, never yes. in a million years would I have thought that was possible. And I remember the first time this woman I, just I to our, our alert camera. people. This woman believed that there are multiple actors playing Joe Biden, and that Jim Carrey is likely one of them wearing a Joe Biden mask. And this is all part of sort of like a Q universe of belief that is yes. a kind of unbelievable. A LARP, yeah. a live action role play. Her, her evidence is that he tripped uh, purposefully up the ramp to that airplane, but that it was just so much like Jim Carrey that it had to right. be Jim Carrey. Right. <laughs> Mind you, he has did an impression of Joe Biden on SNL that really didn't sound like Joe Biden at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. It's funny. So, um, I, not that it wasn't funny, but it was just like, it wasn't like he was like, he, you could imagine him actually pulling it off in, in, the, in a Dave situation. Um, yeah, I remember the first time somebody told me that the, I think it was one of our um, camera operators told, told me about the Q stuff, and he said the JFK Jr., and I was like, no, no, no that's got to be wrong. No one could actually believe that JFK Jr. is, a, is alive. And, like, and I, then I was like, yeah. the same thing everyone always asks, is like, wait, he was a Democrat. Why would he be with Trump? And then it was, yeah. you have to like, be like, how did somebody get from just like reality to, to here? It's, it really didn't make sense to me. And then we started seeing it in the wild. We started seeing people with the the signs with JFK Jr. on it and the the Q shirts with JFK Jr. on. We saw the guy that people say is JFK Jr., which makes you even go deeper into like, so, okay, say you believe A, B, and C, but now he is alive. Well, I, Devram, I I actually believe that. I think that that guy actually is JFK Jr. That guy's JFK yeah, Jr. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that was a joke. Like, Nothing like it. Like a sponge soaking it up a little bit. <laughs> but they believe this guy who works in, I don't know, some, some private equity accounting or something is JFK Jr. Looks nothing like him. But, to, you know, to Jason's point, like, it's kind of depressing. Like, you see these, these people who believe this. There's, it's not a, uh, it's not a, sm- a tiny percentage of the people we stop that believe these crazy things. But I interviewed a guy at a Trump rally a couple months ago, and I was just looking back through the footage, and he says, like, I don't believe Joe Biden is a real president. I believe um, someone else is playing him in makeup or whatever. And trying not to be immune to this stuff, but then I just look at him, and then I go, any other concerns in the country right now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, what is that, like, th- that this has become, like run-of-the-mill enough to that it doesn't register. Eventually, I ended up going back and asking a little bit about it. But there are, you know, if you run into 100 people, 10 of them might sound borderline reasonable, and maybe 20 of them will say the craziest stuff you've ever heard, and everyone else is kind of on a spectrum somewhere in between. But it's it's pretty extreme, and it's like, you know, if we've done this 15 times, it's like... Uh, you know, we we will always see some people who are at every single one that we've been to. So there are people who are just fully on the on the train.
people are familiar enough with the Daily Show and ways in which people can you can pick people out of a crowd and select just the most crackpot people and have fun with them. Um, and I, but I was curious to what degree you find it to be some level of just crackpottery, for last lack of a better word, that it's prevalent, that it's across the board. I guess the people showing up at rallies are more likely to be uh, so devoted that they'll believe anything. Yeah, that's the thing. It's the sample, the sample audience. You know, it's yeah. it's somebody who's because before this, I'd never been to a political rally. That's not true. I went in 1992. Oh God, I'm really dating myself. <laughs> oh jeez. Um, I went. I saw Bill Clinton. Uh, can't, no, no, sorry. 1996. Phew. Yeah. Okay. 1996. Yeah. <laughs> saw Bill Clinton when I was very young uh, with my mom and got to shake his hand. He was like, "Oh, thank you so much." And it was yeah. uh, it was actually a cool moment. But that was the only time I'd been to a political rally. Um, because they're boring. They're like kind yeah. of, they're not like exciting things. And um, at a Trump rally, these people love Trump so much. They believe in him so much. They're going out of their way to to drive hundreds of miles to, to see him. So there's a level of devotion there. And he um, does these things near airports. So he's like landing an hour and a half late, getting off the plane, speaking, and he's gone. And this is this is like people are waiting for days in line. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely the sample audience, but it's still you know these are people's families. It's not like it's not like there are only a few of them. Like anywhere he shows up, you know, tens of thousands of people end up making it there. So I think it would be a mistake to write it off as if it's super fringe. Um, yeah. Well, I think January sixth showed that. Absolutely. I mean, in the whoever they are, they get together in big numbers like that and do things like that, right? And you guys made a couple of videos about January 6th. You were there. Tell me about your experiences that day. I mean, I just want to say that one of the things that really hooked me with you guys was one of your videos opens with, um, Devram, you open up with the video saying, you know, we're here at the biggest gathering of losers in Washington that, you know, in a long, long time. Oh, here's one of them now. And then you get a guy to turn around who has this just basically melts down, has an emotional meltdown. And it's both sad and kind of like shocking the way that this improvised moment worked. And then you turn away and you're like, well, that's and there we are. Yeah, there Um, you have it. There you have it. That's become a line that we both say now. We 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 both yeah. like. I feel like we've taken that just because it's kind of like it's like an it's reportery, but also just kind of like if you're an observer for a second as as the the reporter, and it's just kind of like I guess that's there. You have it. That's, yeah. What more can be said? That, that's reality according to this person. But we we showed up the day before. And we stayed in, in uh, a hotel there, and this was, it was just like a powder keg because the Georgia elections were January 5th, right? Yeah. Um, so we were like in the hotel room watching, you know, so if it wasn't intense enough already, watching those elections go for the Democrats and knowing this group of people is gathering the next day to essentially try and stop the certification of the election, uh, we're hearing like what I can only describe as like almost like video game military pump-up music like blasting Mm -hmm. through the walls of the hotel 
Mm. Um, People screaming, so, let's go, baby, let's go. Yeah. It and was, then we're like, we, we go downstairs in the morning and there's like a, a little cute cafe in the hotel with a Black Lives Matter sign on it. And then just a bunch of people with MAGA gear getting getting coffee there, you know, being very polite to one another and everything. But also, it, you couldn't help but feel like they were like getting ready for a battle reenactment or something. Like, it's like, it, it was super weird. So when you say we had no idea what was coming, obviously we, we didn't know that was coming. But we interviewed people all morning and then we started to think, okay, once this rally lets out, like this could get weird. Thinking attendees and counter protesters or something, but the energy was there. It wasn't as if it, um, yeah. you know, as described by, by people who were there that it was some sort of super peaceful thing. I mean, everyone we stopped was like, this is, you know, 1776 2.0. And you can't really mistake that language for or anything else. Right, and you guys interviewed them, and you it, it, the intensity of their anger. It's interesting because I see these people on your videos saying these things, which seem insane to me. And I sit there, and I, I'm sure you guys have thought about this, like, what happened here? You know, like, these people seem like internet damaged or something. You know what I mean? Like, we do, our, they're all talking about their research that they do. And they've obviously been down all kinds of rabbit holes. And then they show up in reality and they believe these like kind of like uh, unhinged things, right? These conspiracies have just so soaked into their minds that they look like Ma and Paul, you know, your uncle from Florida or whatever. But then when they show up, they're like people who have, you know, should come out of a rubber room. So like, tell me about your experiences. And also I want to know, have you ever felt some level of sympathy for these people? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the sympathy, sure, definitely. And I, I, I do think you kind of hit the, the nail on the head there. It, I think it is the internet, and I, I think it is specifically started with Facebook um, in 2020, 2019, and, and before um, with the, the, um, the Q conspiracies like became memes that came from the message boards, the 8chan and all that. And then they became these memes that were shared as fact on Facebook. And a lot of the people that we talked to in 2020, I think got were it was from Facebook that they got a lot of their quote unquote information. Um, but some of the people we meet, they'll say some pretty terrible, violent things that seem like they are completely out of their personality type. Um, whereas I. I do find myself getting along with a lot of people. And I don't know like how you judge somebody as a good person or not, or if that is even a fair thing to say. Uh, but sometimes I feel like I'm talking to somebody who is a genuinely good person who has been led completely astray. And I, I grew up in Western Colorado in like a super conservative district. So when we show up to these things, a lot of times I'm like, oh, <laughs> they're my people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like we're talking to people and and I know sometimes the videos we do are, are somewhat harsh every once in a while. And I do feel like it's like important to push back on this stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely a level of sympathy. And like these are people's friends and colleagues and families and and i i do fully blame it on like the internet and the sense of community that people are looking for and have found with this and it just sucks it's like 
the 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 woman you talked to about JFK Jr. She had a, a JFK Jr. A Trump JFK Jr. shirt on. You better a hundred bucks, right? Oh yeah, um, I, I won that bet. I haven't gotten paid. You yet, won yeah. that bet that that <laughs> JFK Jr. wouldn't become vice president by the end by September 2021 or something like that. She told us, and she's like a mom with a bunch of cute kids who everyone seemed happy enough, I guess. But she described her life, which was waiting on these message boards till 3 a.m. to get a post that might get yanked down right away, um, which she assumed the government was taking it down or, or, or whoever was posting it was trying to do it in a secretive way. So she she waits up till 3, sometimes 4 in the morning to screenshot these things to share with her friends. Um, so I can only imagine, you know, what type of toll it takes on her family, what those friendships are like. They're based on this insanity um, and they're, you know, she seemed like a super nice person. So I think when we're pushing back on these things by kind of, um, you know, poking fun at these ways of thinking, I think it's important to do that, but there's definitely a level of sympathy there. A lot of these people find, find people somewhere in there. Yeah. Well, I, my general impression from watching the videos of a lot of interviews that you guys have done is that, um, they start out incredibly sure of themselves. It's like this gave them a level of surety and confidence in the way I know how the world works now. You know what I mean? I've, you guys can't pull one over on me. I know. I'm confident. But then you guys scratch just a little bit below the surface of that, and the whole thing falls apart right in front of their face. And you see them kind of like experience uncertainty about what it is they're saying and uh, kind of try to crawl back to where they were at the start. And it's very, um, it's revealing, but that's sort of that moment where you feel kind of like bad for them at the same time as you're thinking, I wish that you didn't think these insane things. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the our hope and our, you know, I don't know if it's a goal of all of this stuff, but we do want people to to take a step back from the extremism of it and to to question their beliefs um, especially, you know, things like the 2020 election or Antifa and Black Lives Matter storming the Capitol, like these conspiracy theories that are, it's, it's just, it's very bizarre to me that they're even conspiracy theories because they're so easily, easily proven wrong. Right. Uh, if, if we could make these people <laughs> at least question them for a second. And yeah. hopefully the, these people and also anybody who's watching this stuff to think like, Oh, even if I'm a conservative, maybe I'm not quite that far. Yes, <laughs> uh, right. Gone. Maybe I'll vote for a candidate who's like a little more, you know, toward the center. Like it would be nice. Uh, you know, we got into this for comedy, and I think we always are like trying to keep that in mind. But if we had a political goal, I think it's just like to to have people question some of this stuff that seems so far fetched that it should kind of be thrown out and maybe people will end up a little bit more reasonable for it. And maybe people will tune into politics a little bit more uh, because they got into it through comedy. So, you know, right. we hope we're kind of like part of something good that's, that's happening, but always changing for sure. I mean, could not have predicted we would be where we are now with an election that still is in doubt for 35, 40% of the country. Like, it it just feels like something we need to continue doing um, as this gets sorted out. 
Well, let me ask you this. You, you talking about these people at these rallies and they are coming out of, you know, non-political worlds. This is their interface with politics, is the Trumpism and Q and the things they read on the internet. But when you go to CPAC, and you guys have been to CPAC a couple of times, mm-hmm. the conservative convention, and these are sort of more institutional players. These are, you know, ostensibly smart or smart-ish people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are your age, right? I mean, and... Yeah, they're, they're uh, 23. They're 23. 23. 23-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let that go. Um, but, you know, they, you know, they're people who one would think have a little more, you know, analytical powers to know better than some of this and can separate the wheat from the chaff. And maybe they just have, they're just power players or they have just straight up conservative beliefs. What, what's been your experience of going into that world? The one that's more traditionally political and that these people are running for things, and they're consultants and stuff. It was kind of like in that video, DeVron, remember that video with the guy where I have the QAnon shirt? There's like a Q shirt they were selling and then an attendee comes right. by and he's like a guy who's there for CPAC and maybe he's in his 40s. And I like hold up the shirt to him like, hey, do you like this shirt? It's a QAnon shirt. And he's, he's, I ask him like, do you believe in it? He's like, no, but I appreciate what they're, what they're doing. And I, 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 and I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? And he's like, there's some things going on that we don't understand. And I was like, okay, all right. But is there a global cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles that are eating babies? <laughs> and he, yeah. he just like took a long pause being like, oh, I have to answer this on camera. And he was like, no, I don't think that. So yeah. I think that they, they do, and who knows who this guy is. I don't think he was, is like running for office or anything like that. But I think that they do kind of throw these phrases to the, to the people. They don't believe them. No. I think they're all playing the, the long game politically. They all think they are anyway, and that it'll, you know, that that they can't turn these people away. So, like Jason's saying, there are certain things they can say, certain dog whistles that can make these people f- feel like they're being heard. Um, but they don't think they're going to be making, you know, policy decisions based on any of this crazy stuff. But the truth is that these people are now, like, running for office. Yeah, <laughs> so, and winning and winning. And, yeah. So it's just it's just like it, it's backfiring in a serious way, I think. Yeah. Well, the J.D. Vances of the world who are people that, you know, we've had a guy on this podcast a couple of weeks ago who spent a lot of time with him and, you know, liked him basically and thought he was like an interesting, smart guy to talk to. But then I said, well, what about the version of him that we're seeing out now? And he's gotten into the Trump world and tried to get that backing is, well, that's, that's a cynical, phony person. And so that's what you have with these people. A lot of them are just, they're willing to have these people indulge this, despite how dangerous it could be or, or what it might lead to uh, for power, right? I mean, and that's what's so gross about it. And well, in any event, like um, you guys in the course of doing these videos uh, must have, um, experienced a, lo- a great deal of discomfort and have an incredible re- <laughs> resilience uh, for un- awkward, uncomfortable moments. I'm sure some of which, you know, there probably have been confrontations that didn't make it on camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's tell always. me about some of those. Um, well, the, the biggest, the most uncomfortable, which is going to be no surprise, but the, the most uncomfortable I think we've ever been was January 6th and January 5th 
walking around D.C. on January 5th where there were Proud Boys and militia members who set up perimeters and were talking to each other on walkie-talkies all throughout the city. It didn't feel like the city belonged to the U.S. government or whoever. It, it felt like it belonged to these militia members. And remember, Jason, and, when you were, uh, you know, we were standing at the side of the Capitol and someone saw the microphone that we, we bring around, like, oh, oh yeah. you're, you're the media. And it was like, there was a moment where it was like, <laughs> something about to happen? Yeah, it was um, like 10 guys they, came around us and then a flashbang went off. And luckily they like turned around and we were like, okay, this is, this is not for us right here. We need to get out of here. And we, we, we got out of there. But that was a, that really messed me up. I mean, I, after January 6th, just because I, I kept thinking they were going to shoot the protesters, um, the protesters, giant quotes, like that were beating up the cops. I kept thinking, uh, one of those cops is going to shoot them because they've got guns and they're like going to kill one of their friends there. They like, this is an act of survival at this point. And I kept thinking, oh, we're going to get a stray bullet. Or like where I like we could potentially die right now, and whenever the, a flashbang would go off, I just kept thinking there was a, a gunshot, and I we like, was like, oh, am I about to get shot? Is this and we is also a war saw zone? a couple of people running away, like bleeding. Um, one guy who ended up on the Senate floor had a like a hole in his cheek. I think he'd been shot with a rubber bullet, but at the time, we didn't have the benefit of any hindsight um, knowing at least as horrible as it was that it was it was restricted to you know we had no idea what number of people were going to be affected by this so we're hearing the noise and uh thinking that maybe tens or hundreds of people are dying inside or i mean the the number of people and the commotion was crazy so i think emotionally that was probably had to be one of the most tense moments just not not knowing what was happening and where it was going but we've had a million incidents where people um you know kind of uh you know make things uncomfortable for us i guess but we try and like you know we're we're just there to talk to people we try and keep that that feeling that that feeling up because it's the truth we're curious about what people are going to say we're um, we're just two guys there talking to people. And so we've we've managed to use that to just kind of keep things calm and like keep doing what we're doing because it's true. We're, we just, we want to talk to people. If you want to talk to us, you can talk to us. If you don't, keep walking. That's fine too. It's definitely been uncomfortable at times, but I, I think we're both pretty good at just, you know, sticking to our guns with, with why we're there. And it's just to talk to people who want to talk. And like, I guess a cop that would, we got... There's a Mike Pence rally in 2016. We've gotten roughed up a couple of times, I guess. We've by, by, You've been by arrested, have you? kicking us out of rallies. Yeah, we have been arrested, but that it's it's very funny why we got arrested. You think like, oh, we're pranking presidents and uh, senators. And we got arrested because we tried to cancel SantaCon in, in New York City um, with a bullhorn and told everybody to go home. Uh, and we got arrested for that in 2016, which is just... If you've been to New York on SantaCon, you know it's terrible. But it's just like of all the things we've done, it's just funny. Yeah, that, that was we the one yeah. for that. That, that was the one that actually put us in in uh, in a holding cell for a while. We we've definitely been held by cops a bunch of times and secret service. Um, but again, we kind of like stick with <laughs> with our with with the truth or or some version of it where we're we don't lie to like cops. We don't lie to Mar cops. That's a rule. Marco Rubio. Um, uh, at a Marco Rubio event a few years ago, and I said, Marco Rubio's trying to steal my girlfriend. 
and I'm being held by the cops outside, and I'm just like, you know, I, th I think he might have been trying to steal my girlfriend. Love is really complicated, right? And they're just like, huh. Yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> please leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, that's that, so. They're not usually uh, your target audience for comedy, the cops. No, they don't have a sense <laughs> of humor about some stuff. It's funny. I don't know. <laughs> that's on them, though. <laughs> so what do you guys, um, tell me about, since this NRA video, is that the most circulated thing that you've done so far, would you say? It's definitely up there. I mean, it's I guess as far as like growth from one video. In 2020, we had like a moment where, you know, not a lot of people had seen us before. And then a couple of videos got shared and we had like a giant yeah. growth and um, followers. And um, a lot of that was thanks to TikTok, actually. So... I, it it probably it it might be one of the biggest things that we've yeah. done. Yeah, it was kind of ingenious for a lot of different reasons, and it's interesting that it happened on the fly and so improvisationally. But like, um, it was one of those rare instances where you were able to make commentary right in front of the person to whom you are commenting on, and then, like you said, there's sort of a question of whether he understood what was happening. I'm sure after the fact, somebody told him or he got it, but. Uh, but it really was effective. What do you guys hope to come out of this? Are you guys have other things you're creating, short movies, films? What do you have in in, in the in the pipeline? We're trying to. Um, well, actually, we're about to start actively fundraising for a, for our next project um, that we're 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 pretty excited about. We won't really go into the details of it, but right. um, we're we're kind of in the fundraising phase of it now but we're, we're we are doing a uh, podcast where we where we're going to go behind the scenes we've recorded a couple episodes and uh actively right now trying to find a home for it um where we we talk through some of some of our our stories from the road and uh, as well as talk to some of the friends we've made from the world of comedy and politics and and, and um, stuff like that um, so, so we're we're really excited about that. But uh, this this next project, we're we're very very excited about as well. Yeah, great. What's the name of the podcast? Is it just the Good Liars. The Good Liars, yes, yes, Good Liars podcast. Uh, very very simple, very very simple. Yeah, we yeah. figure people might want to hear what it's like to go to these things, and uh, we put out these little videos. But there are always a bunch of challenges along the way. There's always more to the story. So. Um, we right, so a little bit way. of pulling the curtain back and maybe some audio clips as well, I suppose, uh, of some of the thing, exchanges you've guys exactly. had. Yeah. And given what you've seen out there, you know, there's an election coming up, lots of ripe uh, events for you guys to look at and, and, and comment on and make comedy from. But um, how worried are you about the direction things are going? Is this world that you guys have tapped into is it as potent as it ever was or do you think that it's less potent than it used to be i think it's it's mutated i don't know that it's not the same it's not trump which in a, in a lot of ways is is scarier because before it was like that's the head of the beast is trump and it's his ego and the wind goes whichever way he wants it to blow and right now it's kind of like this conspiracy mindset um this the 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 maga movement it's not all about Trump. There are candidates that are going to are winning now that didn't have the Trump endorsement um, until the last minute with the in Pennsylvania with Mastriano. That was that was last minute. He just wanted to 
hitch hitch his uh, wagon to to the winning horse there. And so you're seeing people with it without their beliefs who are who are winning, and I think will continue to win. And it's not just Trump is not the 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 kingmaker. Even in the you know the the 2024 presidential election, when we we've asked people, some of them say, "No, I don't know. I think he's getting a little too old." Uh, we've got you know other people that we really like, and you know, as Jason's saying, it's it's scarier to some degree because where that goes is less predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. As as strange as the the years with Trump were, uh, I think it's really hard to predict exactly where this this goes. I think definitely as potent as ever because when we used to talk to people, I don't know, I almost couldn't figure out a unifying thing. It was like we just love Trump so much, but now everyone is like this election was stolen, and why why would this group of people who has so assuredly decided that this is true really trust an election again and what does that mean for democracy <laughs> is just kind of remains to be seen and it's crazy i just didn't grow up you know feeling this that that things were so fragile in our country but now they're talking about that you know isn't trump saying that there's fraud in the the pennsylvania primary between two republicans it's like all the norms are gone, even as far as it, it it comes to elections. And I think that is wild. And I don't know what it means. I have one last question for you. A friend of mine sent me this the other day. It was like a Patton Oswalt was on the Al Franken podcast. And I just want to read you some of the things that some of this little report that I uh, read here, because it, it's something that I think you guys will find curious. But um, he's, he was calling out fellow comics, Patton Oswalt was, saying that they had, in, in many ways, his generation of comics had sort of paved the way for the alt-right to come into being. And here's, why, here's how, he, how he, his logic of that. He said, um, he believes that... Uh, I keep going down this rabbit hole, he said, of reading about Vienna right before the annexation, when Vienna was this very open society, cabaret, irony, and culture, and they were so ironic that they thought the Nazis were a joke. They could not imagine someone like Hitler, who just absolutely meant exactly what he was saying with no irony, no playfulness. And it was so ridiculous to them, like we did with Trump. Like, this is insane, obviously he's through. Uh, We didn't see it coming because we were so wrapped up in irony. And, uh, you know, basically it goes on and on about, you know, our sense of irony somehow made the bed for this or made us not take it seriously or made us immune to the reality that was right there in front of us. I have an opinion about what he's saying there. I'm just curious how that strikes you. It, I mean, it, I think that there is some, some truth to it, for sure. Um, we were like the, especially like, I guess our generation of of comics and his generation, and you think of the '90s and the early 2000s, and it was irony was 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 king. Yeah, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking, just like we were saying earlier about Trump, like I didn't take it seriously because I didn't think it was possible. I don't know how right. irony plays into that. Yeah, other than it's ironic that he won, and I was totally wrong about, <laughs> about that. But <laughs> yeah, um, but but 
I definitely, you know, I, I didn't take it seriously because I, I guess I, I always looked at it like I had more faith in the society and uh, my fellow Americans, even those who I, who think the government shouldn't be as big as I think it should be, they would still wouldn't think fascism's cool. I don't know. Right. So, I mean, it does resonate with me. It does. I, I do think that maybe there's some some truth to that, but I I don't know completely tying it to the alt right. I'm not. I don't know because I know that the, all their me like the like their meme culture, which I don't fully understand. That's all. It's all irony in there too. But I don't think there's anything wrong with irony. Well, he's sort of saying that they co-opted it too. You know, it was they learned it. They basically turned it on its ear, right? They turned it in favor of the fascism, which was a little like an unexpected use of irony. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, Very ironic. Very right. ironic. Yeah, ironically. Well, anyway, I I I I throw that out there, but I don't actually buy it. I mean, I think that the slice of like Generation X who were inventing this level of irony is pretty small, you know, and their influence has not been exactly like I don't know how wide the influence of like irony and comedy uh, leads the whole society well, it was to, big isn't it like the uh, well I guess like it was like irony and awkward comedy was and like, I guess the Daily Show was hugely popular and that was an example of that generational I mean it's hard to say why we all many of us believed that it was impossible that Trump was going to take power the way he did and I mean part of the quote you said is, you know, that that we were all like laughing at it to a degree and thinking that the things he was saying, he couldn't be completely serious in saying. And I guess we got that from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't trace it back ex exactly to yeah. where it came from. But yeah. I do I do really exactly to, to that. I thought like he's saying these things because he knows people like to hear them. He couldn't be this um you know, he couldn't be this stupid and people, not everyone who likes him could be this stupid in, in believing and agreeing. There must be, there must be a level of irony to what they're doing, because I guess that's how I see the world that they must, there must be a level of that to them. They can't possibly want the government to be run this way. There must be a difference between what he's saying and what he's going to do. And I, I guess I don't know where I got those, those, opinions and those worldviews, but I, I, it could, it could very well have, have come from that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after nine 11, irony was declared dead. I recall this, this was a big thing that came out, you know, now we're serious and we're no longer making jokes. Of course that wasn't true, but I also think that irony is a sign of intellectual health you know, I feel like uh, that you have some ability to, you know, distance yourself from your impulses and your feelings and able to re reflect on them, even if it's for comedy. And uh, I miss irony is what I, uh, I and I, I wish that there was more irony in the world um, in this particular moment. But uh, we don't have, we're in a position where we can't afford it right now, evidently. Um but, and that's where your guys' form of comedy is like, um, it kind of skirts the line and is able to comment without seeming glib, uh, or at least avoiding, uh, trying to avoid that and, uh, and being informational, you know? So I appreciate what you guys do. And I thank you for talking to me and engaging in this conversation and, uh, you know, fingers crossed. 
uh, about the future. Um, <laughs> Can't believe we have to say it, but yeah. yeah. Um, but we'll uh, we'll talk to you again up the road. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks so much. And that is our program this week. Thank you to Jason and Devram for coming on Inside the Hive this week. Thank you to my co-host, Emily Jane Fox, who will be back next week. Thanks to my editor and producer, Brett Fuchs. And thank you to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe. Come back next week. We're going to have more great interviews, commentary, people in the news. See you then. <laughs>